You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hey guys, let me tell you something. Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She's built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders and monthly reed subscriptions are also welcome, and she's going to work with you to find the right combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's all caps, for 10% off your first order at JenetEngel.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I got to play the English horn over the weekend with the Meridian Symphony. And in the rehearsal on Friday, I played it and it felt okay. It kind of felt like maybe there was something wrong with my read. I was like, something feels really off. And I looked down and there is a crack in between trill keys on my English horn. And so I thought, okay, well... I'm a professional. I'll just deal with it, right? Like, I can't do anything about it right now, but in the morning, I can go get some super glue and then I'll deal with it. What I didn't realize was how stressful putting super glue on the crack was going to be. I was on the phone with my repair person. Shout out to Kelly Ramsey of Ramsey Oboe Repair because she was so supportive. I was on the phone with her for an hour and a half as she was talking me through it. I had to take all the keys off the top joint and then I had to like perform emergency surgery on my English horn. And I felt like, have you, you've seen the Great British Baking Show, right? Have I seen the Great British Bake Off? Nadia all the way. (laughs) You know, when they're showing them like at the end of a showstopper and like all of their hands are shaking while they're trying to pipe uh, icing onto the finished product and they're like, there's not enough time. That's what I felt like. My hands were shaking. I was like, I have to check out of this hotel in 15 minutes and I have to get all the keys back on this horn. It was one of the most stressful things I have ever experienced. It was, I was just expletive after expletive (laughs) Kelly at my back. I cannot even imagine. I mean, I'm not going to say that bassoons don't crack. I understand that there are occasions when bassoons crack, but it's not like the relationship with cracks that oboes have. And I've never, knock on wood, I've never had to deal with it as a reality. And the fact that it's something that each of you will have to or potentially have to deal with, I just 
you have my utmost sympathy and respect. You and all the other oboes. <laughs> Holy moly, that sounds terrifying. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say what you were playing? I don't think you said the piece you were playing. Tell the people what you were playing. Oh, I was playing Dvorak and New World Symphony. <laughs> so the English horn is just a little important to that piece. <laughs> Of all the pieces to have a crack in your English horn, right? The conductor was, you know, explaining the piece to the audience and he made a point of talking about the English horn solo in the second movement and how it's one of the most poignant and moving moments in the entire piece. (laughs) So you're all going to want to pay real close attention. I mean, in the end, it went great. It went great. Like, I had super glued it correctly. Everything was fine. <laughs> but it was one of the, those moments that teaches you that you are capable of doing more than you think you're capable of. The other thing about that whole experience was that my English horn is probably 15 years old or more. Okay. And I had no idea that older instruments could crack. It was a complete misconception. So what are we dishing about today? We are dishing about misconceptions about playing double reeds. Listen to that seamless transition. (laughs) What a segue. (laughs) (laughs) So, and maybe this won't be as funny to the oboists, sorry. Um, But when I very first started to play the bassoon, I was told by a fellow bassoonist in the band, I was like, okay, what are these like bent twirly thingies. And they're like, that's a vocal. And I was like, okay, but I have two and I'm pretty sure I only need one. Why do I have two? And they said, oh, see the numbers on the side? One, two, three, and four. And I was like, yeah. And they said, you know how clarinet players have like strength of reed? They go from playing on like twos to fours or however the clarinet works, but there's like numbers associated with their reeds and Mm -hmm. that has to do with strength and resistance. They said, it's the same thing for vocals. So you're going to start at a one and then you're going to gradually work your way up to a four. Oh no, that's not how that works. It's not how it works at all. (laughs) Were they being serious? They were being serious. They thought that this was true. And so I just got progressively flatter and flatter (laughs) as I worked my way from a number one vocal to number four vocal because my band director, God love him, he just bought one of every number when he bought the bassoons. So we actually had a one, two, a three, and a four. And he didn't know how it worked either really, or I'm sure he did. I'm sure we did not consult him, but yes. So (laughs) I, I worked all my way up to that number four vocal and uh, Oh oh my gosh, that makes me laugh so hard now. Oh, we got some really great listener submissions for this one. Yes. Can I tell you the one that I found most disgusting? Please. It's um, from Austin. And Austin <laughs> sent in, if a reed doesn't play, then soak it in water overnight. Oh, yes. I have heard this many times. Gross. Not necessarily soak it overnight, but I have had several people I have encountered, younger students, admittedly, who have the belief that they need to store their reeds in water. Yes, I've encountered that probably like three times in the course of my career. Terrible. And you'll be like, what is happening? Disgusting. And they'll be like, I was told to store my reed in water. And it's like, that's not a thing. (laughs) 
For you listening. Stop that immediately and throw it out. (laughs) (laughs) The reed is like disintegrating into the water. But I just bought one last year. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here's a one that all the oboists will love. Pull the reed out in order to tune. Don't ever do that. Don't do that, guys. I'm a bassoonist and even I know that. Um, This is one that probably many of us are guilty of. Bassoonists never have to sharpen their reed knives. We know we have to. We're just babies about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you need an oboist best friend who will just do it for you. You can just go up to that reed room with your puppy dog eyes and say, please, can you do it? And then you just make them feel important. Oh, here we go. Here's one. It's fine for oboes and bassoons to be in marching band. We are here to debunk this myth. I know we're preaching to the choir, but I honestly feel like every fall there is at least one poor soul who comes into the IDRS group who is like, please respond to this post so my band director understands that I should not be marching with a bassoon, please. When I was in high school, my band director tried to get me to play an oboe solo in the marching show. Like I was in the color guard and he said, okay, at this point you're going to run up to the front and you're going to stand here with an oboe and you're going to play a solo. And then you're going to run back and do your color guard thing. And I told my private teacher, bless her a thousand times over because she threw the biggest fit. (laughs) I didn't actually have to do it. I've heard of that too. And I can see why someone would think it would work in theory to have a cold oboe sitting off to the side in the weather (laughs) and have someone not warm up at all and just run and play a beautiful, haunting, lyrical solo that flows over the top of a marching band. Listen, I lived in Connecticut. (laughs) It was November in Connecticut. It was like 20 degrees outside. You're like, I'm sorry. I don't think this is union rules. (laughs) (laughs) Oboe Alley says to play a half whole note, cover half the whole with your finger laughing emoji. That person just probably got bad advice from a bassoonist because (laughs) to half whole we do cover. It's not exactly half, but we do just kind (laughs) of. let some of the top tone hole show. So some poor oboist got a misconception about how to half hole from a bassoonist. I used to think that since oboes have a double reed, that they'd be able to play two notes at once. I asked my oboe friend about it and he gave me the strangest look. Sometimes we do, but not on purpose. Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. 
To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Genda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Genda. Genda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Genda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, And it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender reed knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student reed knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your reed making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any Genda reed knife, maintenance kit, reed knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or reed tool roll. Visit them now at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just reed knives. We are very excited to welcome to Double Read Dish, Gordon Hunt, oboist, performer, conductor, and pedagogue. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Thank you. Could you start off by telling our listeners how you came to play the oboe? Well, I grew up in a musical family. Uh, My mother was a professor of piano at the Royal Academy of Music in London. And so I was listening to music from an early age and learned to recognize instruments. And I played the piano. But when I was 13, I suddenly announced, and I don't really remember why, to my parents that I wanted to learn the oboe. And they were surprised because that made me the first wind player ever in either my mother's or my father's musical families. But I was determined and they were very pleased. So that's how it started. And I think that what happened was that I must have heard sounds that I liked, that attracted me, and made me want to try and make those sounds. And what's perhaps a bit spooky about it is that the BBC, the Broadcasting Corporation in Britain, at that time, one of their first oboes was Terence McDonough, who would later be my main teacher and my main influence at the Royal College of Music. So there was some kind of thing going on there, I think, which is beyond explanation. Can you tell us about your training and educational journey and more about how you got to where you are today? Well, I went to the Royal Academy of Music on Saturday mornings from the time that I started to learn the oboe. I had my first oboe lesson there at the age of 13, nearly 14, actually. And I had no intention of being a professional musician, but again, something changed. And by the time I was 16, I'd changed my mind about my future direction, and I wanted to be an oboist. And from that moment on, that's all I wanted to be. And so I worked hard. I got a scholarship to the Royal College of Music, and that's where I studied with Terence McDonough. And so that became my path. 
and I got my first job actually just before I left college and had a holiday after the last term of college and went then went to my job. When our listeners found out you were going to be on the podcast, they sent in some questions. So Adriana, who is from Germany, asks, I would like to ask Mr. Hunt about his reads. I remember him telling us in a masterclass many years ago that he was adapting his European read to a long scrape style to make it more comfortable. Well, that's right. That came much later. Um, and I think it is something that I did and still do, depending on the individual piece of cane that I'm using. I feel that by lengthening the scrape and creating windows, rather like the American windows, but not as extreme and the scrape not as long, I can get more flexibility and more freedom and more color into my playing than I could with a short European scrape. But I'm not alone in this, actually. Other people do the same thing, perhaps less with the windows than I tend to, but longer scrapes I see quite frequently with, with European players these days. Also, I think reeds made in that way suit the oboes I choose to play. I've always played on instruments made by Howarth of London, and I think their response and flexibility make them the best of the best, actually. We got another question from listener Sean, and um, I'm very interested to hear your answer because as an American, I play on an American, American read. Cool. Um, so here's his question. It is rumored that in the other schools of oboe playing other than the American school making reeds are of much less importance than reeds can be made to last for months how does one make reeds last so long say in the english school of oboe what are the merits and negatives of this approach that players in other countries can learn and apply to their own playing and reed making i'm not sure i really have not have an answer to that because it's always annoyed me that some reeds often the very nicest ones don't seem to retain their best characteristics mm -hmm. for any length of time that one would like them to and die quickly. Um, and I, I think that I, I really don't, I can't answer that properly. Mm. And I, I don't think that ultimately there's going to be much difference between longevity of an American-style read or a so-called European-style read. I think it's pure luck and my maximum, I've still got the read because I couldn't believe it. I reckon it did about 30 concerts, 30, you know, wow. concerts and lots of rehearsals. That is just out of the blue. And I have no reason looking at that read to bring me to any sort of conclusion as to why. And so I think I'll probably come back to this later when we talk maybe more about reeds, but I think natural substance and the cane is just going to do what it's going to do. And you get lucky sometimes. And as we all know, you don't get lucky most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all equally confused. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> 
and time doesn't change that very much in my experience. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So when did you start to make your own reads? Was it while you were, you know, a younger student in your teens or maybe when you went to college? I started actually to make my reads after a year or so of playing the oboe when I was pretty young. And that was because at school, our wonderful staff contained, this is not music school, this is my, my ordinary school, but it had a very good music department. And the music master, who also taught gym and maths, um, he was an ex-professional oboist. And so, of course, we became friends and he was immensely helpful to me and he just simply said why don't you start trying to make some reads and I'll help you and so I did and I played on my own reads pretty quickly uh, alongside buying some as well but I learnt quite early on quite a lot thanks to him Jack Davis his name uh, how how to scrape reads and how they worked um at least there are still days in my life when i don't think i know anything about how they work but i i was <laughs> i was learning something at that early age could you talk to us about how you see and view the oboe playing world as it is today and what direction do you see it going i hope i don't sound um too negative in what I'm going to say, but when I was growing up and in the early part of my career, there were real differences in the voices of different oboe players around the world and within even the same countries. And you could very often, on a recording or on the radio, you could tell which orchestra it was by what the first oboe sounded like. And what I feel now, and what has been happening over some time, is that whilst technical standards, both in the quality of instruments, there are no bad instruments out there anymore. All, all manufacturers make wonderful instruments, and it's just one's own preference, I think, as to what one plays on. Mm -hmm. And the technical standards of the players seem to go up all the time. But so many people sound exactly the same as so many other people. And it seems as though the individual voice of people, to use a singing analogy, which I, I like to anyway in the way I think about playing, that seems to have diminished. And I, I think it's very sad. I understand, of course, and uh, I've adapted through my career to changing fashions. And you, my, my teacher said to me, uh, his quote was, I, make, I, I stay in work because I make the sound people want to hear. And that stuck with me. You can't be the best oboist in the world if you make a sound that is so unfashionable that people don't want to listen to you. So I understand that people want to and need to conform to a certain extent. But within that, the instrument has so many possibilities and 
opportunities for being an individual and sounding like oneself. And I hear less and less of that. And I think it's terribly sad. So it's kind of gone grayer. It's got blanketed in a way where, you know, nobody seems to want to be special anymore. They just want to be good. Mm. Do you have any hypothesis as to why the field has gone more to a homogenized sound? I think it's a reflection of the world generally. Mm. It's easier to travel around. More and more places have McDonald's <laughs> and, other, <laughs> and, 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 and other things which, you know, years ago they didn't. And people expect to find the same things in different places when they arrive at them. They may marvel at the differences, um, but they only feel comfortable when they're surrounded by the same things. And I think music has always been a reflection and should be, perhaps, to a certain extent, a reflection of life. And perhaps life has got more ironed out. Do you think that the solution, if a solution... Um, is to be had, and I agree that the homogenization of sound is a little bit boring and very much a problem. Do you think the solution comes from the bottom with new people coming in and um, demanding a different standard, or do you think it comes from the top? What do you mean by the top? Um, more established players being allowed to explore different sounds and different interpretations and, you know, somebody that will, will uh, sell concerts already rather than somebody new who perhaps doesn't have a following yet. Someone who can afford to take risks. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. The, the, the problem, I think, is that um, conductors, orchestras, the public expect to hear a, a certain thing mm. and are not necessarily excited by something that's different. They may recognize when something's special, but they're much keener on having something which is simply efficient. I remember, I've been playing long enough to remember before the days of CDs and in the Philharmonia, I went into the recording box to listen to our first ever take for a CD. And I went in with Ricardo Muti, who was the music director at the time and who's stayed a friend since. And he listened. He didn't say very much. Perhaps we listened for 10 minutes. And as we walked out, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, they will ruin our art. And those, I think, are very prof prophetic words because, um, and very profound in a way, because it was the beginning of things being expected to be perfect, mm. but in a particular way, in a, in a technical way. And that was the beginning, I think, in the professional field of things being begin beginning to be ironed out. 
Perhaps we should go back to records. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 uh, I mean, I'm still completely positive about music, about oboe playing, and about the world. But it just seems to me that we have got stuck in a bit of a rut of homogeneity. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what the answer is. I wish I did. No, I, I agree. You know, in a lot of ways, the technology is also moving toward live performances mm-hmm. with live streaming and that type of thing. And as a performer, I very often feel the pressure of a live performance being recorded and made available to a worldwide audience, but the expectation of perfection ever present and how those two things reconcile themselves it puts a lot of pressure on especially a a younger or less established musician it does and what it means is that people are less inclined to take risks absolutely and 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 that comes back i think maybe i didn't use the word before but it comes back to what i was saying about more and more people sounding the same it's a question of playing safe and not taking risks and for me there is no excitement in, in that music making has to be about taking risks, pushing things to the limit and occasionally, of course, realizing that one is human when it doesn't quite work. But much better that for me anyway, and far more exciting and interesting than being safe all the time kind of related. You teach at the Guildhall School, a very competitive conservatory. Yeah. Given this dilemma that we've been discussing and the fact that you're training the next generation of artists, how do you balance that? Do you feel inclined to encourage your students to take those risks and find their own sound? Or do you feel for pragmatic reasons of employment that you have to teach them in such a way that they're um, playing by the rules, so to speak? Well, I'm a safer player now than I was when I was young. There's no doubt about it. And, And I've had to be. But it's, it's part of what I believe is possible, and one day it will not be possible anymore simply because of age, but I think it's possible to improve and improve and try to improve all one's life. And so, of course, one does have to be safe. You have to be able to play, let's say, low C-sharp pianissimo, any time that you need to, because that's what the music demands. But those things don't need to cut out the expression and individuality that is vital in making something really come to life. So you have to find a way to be safe without destroying that spark, that element in your playing. And I try to teach like that. And Maybe we can talk about exactly that a bit later, or perhaps you'd like me to elaborate now. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, I firmly believe that the way to play is to play on sensations, because I think the body remembers sensations better than concepts, Mm. theories, words, anything else. 
And so what I encourage my students to do is what I try to do myself, and that is to work out what I want to sound like and work out how that feels and how that differs from sounding something else on the same phrase, let's say. And then when you've worked out what it feels like, you practice that sensation over and over and over again. And that way you achieve the result you want, but at the same time, you're also practicing the sensations that make it safe. And so as you gain control, you gain confidence, and the more you perform, of course, and the more you get it right, the more confidence you gain. Your heart rate stays slower in the performance situation, <laughs> and you're more likely to get it right. And as you practice and perform more and more, that becomes you, and you explore all those possibilities. It's endless, of course, but that's how I try and play, and that's how I try and teach. And I think what I say very often to my students is that if I can do myself out of a job, then I've done my job well. If I can teach them to be their own best teachers, then I've achieved something. I love that idea of teaching your students to be able to trust their themselves and their bodies and their instincts in order to sure. create a successful performance. I love that so much. Mm -hmm. I think it's the, the only way forward because mm -hmm. that way they're not learning parrot fashion, just, just copying. We all copy, especially when we're young, we copy... And we always should, if we like something, we should find the way to do it. But that comes back to how does it feel for that individual to do that? Because sure as eggs are eggs, it won't be the same for them as it was for the person they're trying to copy. Even if that person could tell them what it felt like, which they probably couldn't. Mm -hmm. Because sensations are personal and, and it's very difficult to describe them, which is why I think it's important for those individuals to find their own feelings in playing. Switching gears a little bit, you mentioned an experience um, as principal oboe of the Philharmonia with Muti, and you've played in some really incredible ensembles, the Philharmonia, the L London Chamber Orchestra, and the London Philharmonic. Can you talk to us about some of those experiences that you've had and the incredible conductors that you've worked with. Yes. How long have you got? Have you got a couple <laughs> of <days? laughs> um, I, I, I still play in the London Chamber Orchestra and I still go back into the Philharmonia, although I've officially left them. I left them last year, but I, I go back in and play with them. Um, It was an amazing beginning to my London career. I was in the BBC Welsh Symphony Orchestra for three years, first of all, from college, straight from college, as I think I said earlier. But that was apprenticeship in a way, um, fully professional, obviously, and every note that we played was broadcast. So I learned how it was to sit with the red light on when I was very young. And... Having done those three years, I then got the job in the Philharmonia and Muti was the, the conductor. And 
it would be almost impossible to single out individual performances because he was electric. He was also building his career at the time and bringing the orchestra up from a rather low point. And it worked for both the orchestra and him. Uh, it, it put the orchestra back in a fantastic strong position and it launched his amazing career. And we did so many concerts and played so many different pieces. And alongside him, there was Lauren Marzell for years, Heitink, and then in the London Philharmonic, Klaus Tenstedt, Scholte, all different and all in their own ways, brilliant. And my latter years in the Philharmonia with Dokunani and then Esapeka Salonen. So many things. I'd find it hard to single anything out. I think it would be, it would be unkind to mm. try and find um, one or two performances which meant m more than, than others because the whole experience was, was amazing. Do you have any um, particular repertoire or pieces that you especially love to play in the orchestral setting? A lot, really. Uh, some also that I wouldn't mind if I didn't ever see again, possibly some <laughs> not even hear them again. But, but I mean, if I say anything by Brahms, anything by Sibelius, absolutely anything by Haydn and Mozart and Beethoven, Stravinsky, it's, the list could go on beyond that as well. But I think when any one of the Brahms symphonies or any one of the Sibelius symphonies or, or any one of the Beethoven symphonies came up, it was always uh, an immense pleasure to, to play them. And of course, the orchestra was so good that even if the conductor wasn't very good, we could still have a great time and have a very good concert <laughs> because the orchestra. <laughs> The orchestra, as so often happens, would carry the conductor through. The problem then is that that conductor may not be very good, but at the end of the evening, they think they are. They all do. <laughs> <laughs> That's possible, too. <laughs> what advice do you give for people who are auditioning for orchestral jobs? The first piece of advice that I give them is that they should remember why they're playing the oboe. They're playing the oboe because they love it. And an audition, whilst it's rarefied, of course, is no different to getting up and playing your oboe anywhere else. It's just exactly the same. You go out there and you do the best you can at that moment on the day. And I think to try and build auditions up into something kind of unusual, even more rarefied than they are, is dangerous. And the more normally you can approach them, you've done your practice, you know you can play what's in front of you. If not, you shouldn't be there. And if you can, all you can do is concentrate and do your best and try and make the, the event itself have as little importance as you possibly can. It's just the same standard that you would expect from yourself on any other day. 
-hmm. Perhaps related, do you have any experience or advice um, for dealing with performance anxiety, especially with playing those huge excerpts or big solo passages? Breathe. I think... (laughs) That's the, that's, the, <laughs> that's the core of everything we do. And it's very often something that's forgotten under pressure. But, of course, it's not breath. It's oxygen that we need in order for our brains and our bodies to function properly. So breathing properly and remembering how to breathe is absolutely vital. And remembering that you've done the work you know that you can cope. And gradually, as you experience more, you've done everything before and you cope better and better. So given that little bit of extra experience, that becomes easier. But even at first, if you've done your work and you breathe properly, then anxiety levels are at their minimum, I think. And it's really just physiological. It's keeping the body fueled with oxygen. That's that's the key to it. Considering your busy schedule, uh, how do you prioritize practicing and making the most of your practice time and read making among all of your other responsibilities? I think sometimes that's very hard and it often seems like just a rush to get a few reads made and hope that they'll work. Uh, especially with touring, uh, but also the lifestyle here in London. I live a little way out of London in the country, which is part of my sanity, if I am still sane <laughs> at all. And um, so there's a lot of time spent traveling, just literally just traveling into London when I'm working there. And I often feel that prioritizing things is very difficult. It's just a matter of, trying to find what needs doing at that time. If it happens to be making another three reads, well, so be it. If it happens to be refreshing my memory on something technical, which is coming up, usually it's technical if I'm going to work at something. There are pieces which you learn you have to work out every time they come up. And others which, of course, well, Maybe they lend themselves better to the oboe and you don't necessarily have to refresh on those. So I try to find just the passages which really need the work and spend time on those. Time has always seemed to be limited. And I think you know that in London, the schedules that we work are sometimes totally ridiculous. I think I (laughs) I once worked... 66 days without a single day off Mm. and some of those days were morning afternoon and evening and that's it's not usual in any other place in the world but that becomes usual for us here it's not right but it's the way it is the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle is fresh on all of our brains. And yes. in 2005, you played for the service of dedication and prayer to celebrate the marriage of the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall. I want to know what it is like playing for royalty. Is that a surreal moment or what was that experience like? 
Well, it was an amazing event in every way, of course, as any royal wedding is. Right. And I was asked to play the slow movement of the Albinoni D minor concerto while they walked from the car into the chapel and up through the chapel to the altar for the blessing. And it was an extraordinary thing, really, because everything before that was quite quiet and the music was fairly subdued and I wasn't in anything. So I had to sit there for quite a long time and wait and then start with my concerto. So I think I was more concentrating on how I was going to get the first note to come out than anything else. (laughs) 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 And uh, the the occasion was just um, mind-blowing in a way. The number of famous people who were in the chapel not to mention Prince Charles and Camilla. I'd met Prince Charles before because he was patron of the orchestra and still is. And so I I kind of knew him. And I've played that piece for them since uh, in concerts at, at Buckingham Palace. And he's always very sweet about it. So, you know, says it brings tears to his eyes. That's very nice. That's amazing. (laughs) I'm trying not to ask a bunch of unrelevant questions about Kate Middleton, so I'll control myself and let (laughs) Kali ask the next question. I I wouldn't be able to answer them anyway. She's someone I've never met. So I would love to ask about if you have had any memorable moments on stage. Some people have answered... Um, with perhaps embarrassing moments that have happened on stage or unusual moments. And some people have answered with just really, you know, positive, memorable moments. So do you have anything like that you'd like to share with us and our listeners? There There are quite a few over the years, but perhaps the most memorable was actually very recent. Last early autumn on the Philharmonia, maybe only a month before I left, we had a tour in Europe. And I had a a new oboe, beautiful new LXV oboe from Howarth's. And we were playing Eroica in Switzerland. And it was a very, very well-lit stage. And there's not much time to do anything in the Eroica for a first oboe, except keep playing, really. But... (laughs) I looked down in one of the rests during the slow movement and I could see my top joint cracking before my eyes. <gasps> so I think that's fairly memorable. Oh, my and, God. And, and the funny thing was it worked perfectly throughout the piece for the rest of the slow movement and the remaining two movements. And I couldn't really understand why because the crack was getting longer and bigger. <gasps> oh, my God. And, of course, I could have borrowed second oboe's oboe, and that would have been fine. But I thought I'd plow on and see what happened. And it was absolutely fine, behaved beautifully. But when I tested it at the end of the performance, there was no suction at all in the top joint. And so it makes you realize that you can actually you can get by on 
far less efficient instrument than you think. Although, <laughs> although I must say I wasn't very comfortable for the rest of that concert. <laughs> it's like when you break your ankle, but you have to keep walking on it. So, yes, well, that apparently is unwise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrifying. Oh. So I that's because it's so recent. I put that down <laughs> as my most memorable moment. I'm sure there've been lots of other things. Uh, and and then there've been lots of occasions when I've not been there for people who've fainted and fallen off the stage and you know all that sort of thing. I I've missed quite a lot of things that that would have been spectacular. I, people have died in the audience before now, and I must say that that's not the best thing to happen during a concert. <laughs> 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 and then you you end up wondering if it was your playing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Could you talk to us a little bit about your approach to and thoughts on read making? Yes, of course. I think that one has to standardize and work out over the years what one likes and what one needs out of a read, because, of course, we're all physically different. Our teeth, our embouchures, our physical attributes in different ways that contribute to our playing, we're all very different. And so we're bound to need different things in our reads and there's never been more equipment than there is now to help us do that you can try things endlessly and change things a little bit and after all what we're dealing with with the oboe is tiny things which make big differences and so with shaping machines and gouges profiling machines the list is almost endless and the permutations of those things almost endless. And that's science, if you like. But I think the most important thing to remember is that we're dealing with a natural substance and therefore standardize as much as you can, but never forget that reed making is a craft, perhaps an art, actually. And given that your knives are sharp, learn to create something out of a suitable piece of cane, which has been processed in your usual ways. But never forget that the, the ultimate results are created with that craft, and not with science. That's what I would say. I would be curious to know um, how much cane you end up throwing away. How picky are you in your cane selection? I, going back to the science of it, I now use a hardness tester to refine what I like out of a, a batch of cane. So I either, if some of my students like harder cane than I do, I tend to go for quite soft cane then I gouge some of that, and if it's a good batch of cane, they'll use that and in, enjoy that. But I, I try not to waste too much cane, 
And I discovered something recently. I was talking to somebody in the in the London Symphony Orchestra, and she said that she was using some very old cane. And I thought, well, I've got a house full of old cane, and obviously the cane wasn't good when I bought it. Otherwise, I would have used it. But what I found up in the attic was a bag of cane which I bought in 1993. And since I tried it, I've played on nothing else this year. And I, I have a feeling that keeping cane for a long time might be a very good idea. And there's no, no doubt that that cane was useless at the time mm. or, or there wouldn't have been any left. So I, I think it's a complicated business choosing cane. And I buy cane all the time. I, I buy it from Dimitar Jordanoff at Roseau Chantant. That's the cane that I like. Uh, but not it doesn't always work. It's not always the answer. And so I put that away and hope that it will work sometime in the future. That's really good advice. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? First of all, work hard and continue working and never forget that you can get better and better and never give up on that. And also believe in yourself. I think we all know when we can do something. And I think it's really important to have that belief in yourself, the modesty to know that you need to keep working and that you can always be better. I think also it's good to realize that there are some things in playing that other people will always do better than us. But then we can always work at those too, and at the same time concentrate on our strengths and improve those. So everything's going along side by side, maybe not at the same pace, but keep just there's no substitute. Keep working. Keep working. Gordon Hunt, it has been an absolute joy to talk with you. Thank As you. As a closing question, I would love to know what your upcoming performances are and what you're excited about in the coming year. Well, I have a much less regular schedule now. I'm not in the Philharmonia anymore. And I very often respond to phone calls and in fact just last week the phone rang one evening and I was on a train up to the north of England the next morning very early to do three days work which was fabulous actually with the Royal Northern Symphonia the repertoire was fabulous the orchestra is fabulous so I my life's full of surprises now um, much much more so than it used to be but what is in the pipeline is a couple of days of recording with the Philharmonia, some piano concertos back into my old orchestra. And next week, I'm playing with the World Orchestra for Peace in the Proms in London, where Dick Woodhams and I swap places. It's the only time when I, I play second, and it's the only time when Dick plays second. So we do one half of the concert each, playing second to each other. And this time I'm playing first in the Beethoven Choral Symphony with Donald Runnicles conducting, which I'm looking forward to 
immensely. Tomorrow I'm off to Poland to coach the iCulture Orchestra, Oboes and Wind. That's an orchestra put together from what one might call Eastern Bloc countries, Belarus, Poland, and so forth, that, that area, Georgia. And I do that every year. And then next month, I'm conducting and playing at IDRS in Granada in Spain, which I'm looking forward to hugely. So I'm conducting four oboe concertos and playing the last of the six Silenka sonatas for oboes and bassoon. And I'm really looking forward to that. In between all of that, the phone may ring several times and I might find myself doing lots of stuff that I don't know about yet, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been such an inspiring and enlightening conversation, and I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. You're very kind, and I must say the time's gone incredibly fast. You're very good to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this cracking good episode. It cracked me up. (laughs) (laughs) You can follow us on all of our social media at Double Read Dish and subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, or Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to tune in for our next episode where we will be joined by Polish bassoonist extraordinaire Katarzyna Zibildnam. Galit, it is time to end this nerd parade. Time to go make reads.